If you'll turn in your Bibles, please, to Titus chapter 3. I'd like to speak to you this morning from Titus 3, 10 to 11 on what to do with a divisive person. The Lord said that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He was, of course, speaking of the universal church. Every believer from the day of Pentecost to the time of Christ's return in the rapture is part of his universal church that will not fail. Everyone he intends to save will be saved and he will get all the glory from it. But he did not promise that his local churches would always continue. In fact, if you look at the first century of the church, none of the churches that were planted by an apostle are still biblically faithful. By the end of the first century, the book of Revelation counts seven churches in Asia, of which three or four of them were failing in their mission to be faithful to Christ. And so how are we supposed to, in light of the things that we're discussing today, be unified, biblically faithful, and see the fruit of the Spirit work in our church? It's not simply by our resolve. It's by coming under the work of the Spirit in the unity of the Word, in which we together agree that the Word says what it says about the incidents that we are in, and we agree with God's Word about what to do with it. Otherwise, it's merely our opinion. So I want to point you today to Titus chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. And I understand coming in that many of you still may be confused about the process that just occurred. My hope is that we'll be able to demonstrate from Titus 3 our thinking on God's Word about how to process dealing with a divisive person. And I want you to know that we're following suit, not simply biblically, but historically with our own church, as Pastor Leek not only preached on this passage, but exercised discipline in a matter six years ago, faithful to this passage, when an elder in this church went rogue. And so following scriptural principle and the history of our own church, I point you to Titus chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Who is Paul speaking to here? When he says in the book of Titus, reject a factious man, who is he speaking to? Well, the book of Titus is, of course, one of the pastoral epistles, like Timothy 1 and 2 and Titus. Paul is writing to a young protege to explain to them how they are to conduct themselves in the church and how do they lead God's church. So this particular passage is addressed to Titus as an elder and a pastor, telling him what the elders and pastors should do in the case there is a divisive person in the congregation. So in that light, let's take a look a little deeper. If you look at Titus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, you'll see that Paul is speaking to Titus. He says, remind them, he tells them, the preacher, the elder, the pastor, remind them, the congregation, to be subject to rulers, 
to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Then skipping to verse 8, Paul tells Titus, I want you to speak confidently. And then skipping to verse 10, reject a factious man. So Paul is addressing a young elder pastor in that church and telling them, in the case of a divisive man, I'm going to give you instruction what the elders need to do. So basically, subsequently, these verses now, in our age, are speaking to the elders of the church and are telling us, Paul through Titus to us, that we have the authority and the responsibility to remove divisive people. It's not something we take lightly, and it's not something we've just thought, oh, should we just do that? But we are commanded, and we're given the authority to act. So what are we to do? What are the elders to do when there's a divisive person? Paul's first point, first word, reject a divisive or factious man. What does he mean by reject? Well, this word simply means to refuse. Talk to the hand. To avoid. To turn aside. Like when you don't want to go buy something, you go around it. It means to avert or shun. And it is interpreted in different passages as have nothing to do with. Paul is telling Titus that when you get the case of a divisive man, to put them out. Have nothing to do with them. It's the equivalent to saying to disfellowship someone from the body of Christ. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul also uses the same term, and he says, have nothing to do with worldly fables. So in this passage, he says, have nothing to do with divisive people. Reject them. In another passage, same word, he's saying, don't have anything to do with worldly fables. Now, if you insert in your mind, what would you do with worldly fables if you were going to reject them? Here's four or five things you might think. Paul would be telling him, don't listen to them, right? Don't listen to worldly fables. Secondly, he'd say, don't entertain the thought of their spurious assertions. Don't listen to that falsity. Thirdly, don't encourage others to believe false stuff. Tell them to cease and desist and avoid them. And finally, of those who would teach false things in 1 Timothy 4, tell them to repent. I want to read a little bit of a, a story here, not a story, but a quote by Paul Tachis, someone that both Gabe and I know. He's a biblical counselor, he's a pastor, he's an author, and he's been through this, and he writes about Titus 3. Titus 3, 10 and 11 is strongly stated. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and sinning, being self-condemned. And he also goes on and says, Romans 16, 17 says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. Because of potential harm to the sheep, church shepherds must take swift and firm action with factious men, thus escalating their action beyond the slower, more methodical process outlined in Matthew 18 for other sins. And I'm going to come back to that. 
So not surprisingly, no one in the church is more likely to shout foul while accusing the leaders of violating Matthew 18 than the factious man whose power of influence lingers on while church leaders are intimidated and their rightful actions stall. Therefore, he goes on to say, though a theological heretic certainly causes division in a church, the focus of the apostle in this passage is warning is directed at the self-willed man whose self-serving agenda causes people to choose sides. Often, it's an existing leader or a leader wannabe. We are to reject a factious man. The second question that Paul has here, though, is, so who is the factious man? What is a factious person? Here's my definition. A factious or divisive man is one who attempts to win people over to a perspective or position contrary to Scripture in the case of false teachers and contrary to the elders or biblically ordained leaders of the church in the case of simply the divisive man. It is someone who, as Scripture states, is attempting to draw off disciples to themselves. The Greek word here for factious man is actually the word from which we get heretic. So some have thought heretic means always doctrinally wrong or aberrant. But that's not what the word meant when Paul wrote it. It meant to be someone who drew people off into a sect or into a group or the party of the Pharisees, same Greek word. It means to draw people off into an opinion or a small group based on four different things I see in the New Testament. The question with division is very interesting. All of us as Christians in this room know that doctrinal heresy and the drawing away, oh, get rid of that person, we know that. What's far more subtle is the other three brands of division that happen in the Bible. I'm going to give you four kinds of division in the Bible, define them, give you an example for them to get your head around what we're talking about, about being a divisive person. I've simply labeled them the heretic, the hero, the heir, H-E-I-R, and the hurt and hateful. Four kinds of divisive people who draw people to themselves for various reasons against biblical authority and in opposition to the word. Again, the heretic, the hero, the heir, and the hurt and hateful. The first one is simple. We've already said the doctrinal heretic. This is like in the book of Galatians, the Judaizers. Paul's like, get them out of here. The book of Colossians, the neo-gnostics, get them out of here. And everyone in this room would say, that's right, amen. That person's causing division over uh, doctrine, get them out of here. The next three are a little more subtle. The hero creates a personality cult. The hero creates the personality cult. Scripture says, I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. And I am of a certain pastor, now living or dead. What happens in a personality cult is that the hero becomes an idol. The person 
has an idol rather than scripture, rather than the duly constituted officers in looking at authority, they've become an authority unto themselves to draw disciples to their particular idol. And if you don't do what the idol says, the person that they look, then you are wrong. 1 Corinthians 1, of course, tells us this. Paul says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ, the really holy people. And then Paul goes on and says, has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? The subtle drawing of people away to the belief that you must follow a man does not matter who that man is. You can think of many in our generation. Oh, he's the great preacher. He's the whatever. The third kind of division in the church is the heir. The person who is trying to hold up their position, power, or prestige through whatever means they can, and they believe that they are the heir of a contested will. Hear me out. We know what a will is, that when someone thinks they're going to die, they give a will, and in it, they give instructions to take their estate and divide it up. An executor of the will is typically named in the will in order for that person then to divide those things up. The only legal document that the executor of the will can work off of is the will, and whatever's corollary documents are signed under that. The executor of the will cannot come in and create their own idea of how to use the estate. But what happens? People will often contest the will. No matter what's written in the real documents, someone comes along and says, but Uncle Bubba told me privately before he died that he was going to give me the house. And then there's a contested will. What I would suggest in a metaphor of the picture that Pastor Gabe has painted here today is this, that when Pastor Tom died, there was a contested will. What will did Pastor Tom leave behind? He pointed us to Scripture. Pastor Tom, in all of his 23 years of preaching here, the written documents of the doctrinal statement, the bylaws, the Constitution, and his principles of the, of the distinctives of this church, do two clear things as regarding who's the leaders of the church and how the church should be governed. He tells us Scripture's the final authority. That's the will and testament of the Lord. And secondly, Pastor Tom continuously pointed us to this. It's an elder-led church. That is the form of government that this church and Pastor Tom believed the Scriptures taught, and therefore was the way we were to govern. What happened after his death was these, um, those in question began to try to contest the will. We have secret knowledge. We have secret ideas. We have things that we think Pastor Tom wanted to happen. Friends, without clear documentation and the Word of God and the instructions to the elders, those are not equal to Scripture. 
And so what often happens in the case of a devising person is that they become the church boss. They begin to go against the leaders, even if they're a leader themselves. Most of you know that Diotrephes in 3 John is the person I'm probably talking about. Let me read that. The Apostle John wrote to a church to tell its leaders how they should govern and rule. But one of the leaders, Diotrephes, wouldn't listen to the apostle who was in authority, and it says this. John says, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. The heir is the person who believes they are the first voice in the room. They were the appointed voice from the dead pastor. Verse 10, for this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words, and not satisfied with that, he cast out the brethren. Diotrephes is the picture that every seminarian finds out about. He's the guy who's the church boss. You go in and you find out he thinks he's in charge. Most pastorates out of seminary last what? 18 months at the most? That's the typical scenario. And oftentimes because the young guy comes into a situation where there's an heir. And then finally, the fourth kind of division in the church are the hurt and the hateful. Now, this is usually the picture of a person like the elders, the leaders didn't understand me. They really hurt me just like they've hurt you. And so I need to tell you some things about what the elders are really like. My friend, as soon as somebody starts to whisper, in Proverbs it says the whisperer divides and his words or her words are like little dainty morsels that go into the soul. The person who lowers their voice should put you on high alert. They're hurt. They're bitter. They've been robbed. That picture in the Bible to me is Absalom, the son of David. Third in line, but because two other brothers were out of the way, he was the heir apparent to be the king of Israel. But Absalom had been hurt by David, his father, because David had rebuked him over an incident that had occurred in the family. With that stunned bitterness and with his great handsomeness, he was the most handsome man in Israel, it says, he did the following. Absalom, according to 2 Samuel, used to rise early, stand beside the gate, and where any man had a suit to come to the king for judgment. Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And he would say, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, see, your claim are good and right, but no man listens to you on the part of the king. Basically, I can help you. The king's not going to listen. Verse 4, moreover, Absalom would say, oh, that one would appoint me judge in the land that every man who has a suit or cause could come to me and I would give them justice. And verse 6, and in this manner, Absalom dealt with all Israel who came to the king for judgment. 
So Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. It doesn't always end up that the duly constituted people end up okay. David is cast out as king. He's usurped. And there's a whole incident. So Gabe has already alerted. What is the pattern of this? How does this all start? It doesn't start in a weekend. I want to quickly give four words that Scripture uses about different stages of divisiveness. Uh, Pastor Gabe has already mentioned some of them. That is, a person begins with an alienation of affections, which they divide from you emotionally. I'm no longer with you. Secondly, they move to a division in which they bring disharmony and disunity among the people by promoting their own cause, but not necessarily in negativity to the other cause. The third one in the New Testament is sedition. That's the word that's scary. Not only promoting a new cause against the cause of the biblically uh, functioning eldership, but then to undermine that by malicious words. Let me read. Sedition. The notion of inciting by words or writings, disaffection towards the constituted authority, disturbance of the peace, raising discontent or disaffection among the congregation, promoting feelings of ill will and hostility between members of the body of Christ and their leaders. Galatians 5 tells us, 5.20 tells us that sedition is a work of the flesh. And then finally, when sedition comes to its fruit, you've undermined, you've gained people to yourself. What happens? If it doesn't work, they move to open rebellion. And that is openly defying the leaders and pronouncing themselves the leaders in their place. Of course, Hebrews 13 tells us, obey them that have the rule over you. Submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, that they might give an account, and that they may do it with joy and not with grief. For that would be unprofitable for you. Now, I just say this as a word. If someone is a rebellious person against one institution or one group and becomes openly rebellious, it is possible if that person does not repent or is unchecked, they become a revolutionary. That's the next step out. They're against all authority. They become unchecked. But I just want to say this, that even though this passage is specifically dealing with the issue of what to do with a divisive person, you have to know that in the New Testament, there are multiple ways to get shunned. <laughs> it's like your own Amish village in the whole New Testament. For sexual immorality, for covetousness, idolatry, reviling, drunkenness, extortion. In 1 Corinthians 5, 11, Paul mentions extortion or swindling people as a reason to have nothing to do with a person, have them away, refuse them. And then, of course, false teaching and divisiveness in chapter 3. So when are we to reject this person? We are to reject a factious man. The passage simply says, after a first and second warning. Now, the problem with this is that in the minds of each person, the word warning can mean a lot of things. And that's part of the confusion. For some, they're like absolutely convinced. A warning is a huge event. The entire congregation was available. You warn them up here. You have a, a poster. And we have to understand what the Bible says about this word. To warn. This word means to place upon the mind. The Greek word is neuthesia. Neuthetic counseling, biblical counseling, 
it is to place on the mind of a person in their conscience the ramifications of their actions. It does not imply that it's formal or a tribunal or there's no yelling and screaming. Uh, and in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, the word is used, and it says this, Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon the ends of the age. What does that mean? We are instructing. It doesn't mean yelling, warning in some formal sense. What's the point? Paul's saying that after speaking to a divisive person twice, in which you bring up the issue, you are then to reject them. Now, tomorrow night we're having a, a Zoom meeting for the whole congregation, so I'm not going to go through all the pieces uh, that we will in tomorrow night's meeting, but we believe uh, certainly that we met the requirements of this passage in warning twice, and I will simply say that with those who are questioned, uh, in the particular case of the individual, we had a three-hour meeting six weeks ago in which we clearly fulfilled this mandate to warn and appeal to conscience and to consideration of their rebellion to authority. And then our letter constituted a second formal one. But according to Paul, there is no timetable of this. And that's the other piece. Look carefully. Paul doesn't say, now warn them, now spend six months, and then do this, and you have to bring a pizza with you. There, there's no, it's left to the discretion of the elders to deal with the individual based on how open they are, what a threat there is to their division, the timing of it. If someone were to get up and be divisive in this meeting, they get up and they just started yelling terrible things and they wanted to divide the church, we would tell them to stop, right? Right here. They sat down and 30 minutes later, they got back up. We would tell them, their second warning, no, you're done. At that point, we removed them from the building. It could be a day. It could be six months, depending on how open the person was. So a lot of people, I think, would ask the question then, how does this relate to Matthew 18? Uh, in what we just did in the last week, did we violate Matthew 18, which tells you if you have a problem with your brother, go to them privately. Then if not, they don't repent, take two or three witnesses. And then if they don't repent, take it to the church. Did we violate that? Were we supposed to follow Matthew 18 as elders? Well, Matthew 18 and Titus 2 are different processes, and so let me describe. Here's a distinction. Who are they written to? Well, Matthew 18 is written to all believers, how to deal with sin in the church, and Titus is written to the elders, how to deal with a divisive person specifically. Number two, how do the elders get involved in those two patches? In Matthew 18, it's in the third step, right? Individual, two or three, bring it to the church. In that passage, also people have in their mind, bring it to the church means, in some people's minds, in more of a congregational background, that we would adjudicate the case in front of everyone. That we would actually take all the facts and not make a determination as elders until we brought it before you and you were the jury. That's the picture of some of what bring it to the church means. But in our form of government, and as we understand eldership, the elders would make the final decision no matter what the congregational input was. Even if we did have a congregational meeting, it would be left to the elders to determine the final situation of the case. But I just encourage you not to place the picture that take it to the church means take it to every individual in the church and work through the information. 
that, that is not what the command is telling us to do. It was written before the cross, and it was an explanation of the whole writings of the epistles were not there to explain elder rule, how to deal with sin in the church. It's explaining that. Third thing is this. Who makes the final decision? The elders in both cases. What sin is being dealt with? In Matthew 18, the sin is personal. It's one person to one, two or three witnesses, and then it comes to the elders. Uh, it is not meant to deal with a divisive issue in which it's a public matter. Uh, division in the church <laughs> is not a one-on-one thing. It's not a personal affront with an elder versus a divisive person. But they don't need to go to him and then say, hey, then another step and that step. Let me explain it this way. If you're a parent and your children are fighting, do you have to follow Matthew 18? Like, hey, Johnny, I know he's beating you with a baseball bat, but you need to work this out, Matthew 18. Then bring some witnesses from your other brothers and sisters, and then I'll get involved when this is over with. No. The mistake, too, is thinking that Matthew 18 is a one-way street that the elders have to stand passively waiting for something to happen. But the elders, if they find out that there's division in the church and two people are not getting along, they can call it out and stop it just like a good parent. Paul does that in Philippians 4, where he says, Judea or Judea or whatever, and Syntyche, stop it. He doesn't say, hey, I'm going to set up a Matthew 18 experience. Matthew 18 is for personal interactions, work them up, and the elders get involved like the higher court when the lower courts didn't work, but they are not restricted in jurisdiction from actually getting involved at step one. They're not restricted by Matthew 18 from that. It's simply the process that keeps all of the work off of the elders. It's the Moses principle in the Old Testament where Moses has various groups that deal with things, and only the larger cases come to Moses. Matthew 18 is reflective of Leviticus and that principle of working that up to a final thing, but it's not the only way to deal with conflict. So here's what I write. Don't be fooled by the person in question later saying, no one ever told me, he didn't understand, it didn't feel like a warning. If you have a child who's disobedient to you in their heart, you may have had a child where you say, no matter what we do to discipline them, they just look at you. Didn't feel like a warning. Our three-hour meeting, for example, appealed to this person to stand down from leadership in opposition to us. He had an unbiblical ecclesiology. He was undermining our authority at the deacon level. He was discussing information that was private to the board and sharing it with others. He was slanderous to us. He had a false narrative of the two years of these events, and he was impugning our integrity in the congregation. Paul is very explicit. You elders are required by God's word to remove this man. It's not something we want to do, We want to obey Scripture, though. So how do we view that person? Reject a factious man. What kind of faction? Many kinds. And after two or three clear warnings, reject them, remove them. But how do we view that person going forward? What are we supposed to be thinking about this brother in the Lord? And he is a brother in the Lord from every other indication. Paul says three things in verse 11 knowing, he starts out, now you know this, Titus, 
knowing three things. The man is perverted, he's sinning, and he's self-condemned. Do I know that? Remember, Paul's talking to Titus, who was actually involved in the case. It's not just intuitive knowledge that everyone in the congregation would get. In fact, that's part of the problem, isn't it? Part of the problem is you're like, I never saw that. Or he seemed like a great guy to me. But Paul's writing to Titus, who saw the whole thing and said, you know that these things are true. So what is true of the person who is sinning as a divisive person? Paul says three things. They're perverted. Now, this word simply means to be deviated from the norm and to be turned inside out. In Greek, it can mean a turned ankle, a dislocated ankle, something that's been turned for the worse. And the person's refusal to heed admonitions shows that he's not so much an error of the mind, but of the heart. Perverted does not necessarily mean sexual sin. It means to be deviated from the norm. And it can be deviated from your own norm. What you once saw in a person, they're doing great. They can deviate if they allow bitterness to grow up. Paul also goes on and says, for sure, you know they're sinning. What does he mean by that? He means that it's a continuous missing the mark. And this person is not just factious, but they're continuing to sin because they are not repentant. And then thirdly, they're self-condemned. That's the beauty of this in terms of, do you need a tribunal? Paul says a divisive person's own words condemn them. I'm against the elders. Check. You've already condemned yourself. What's it, what is a person who's self-condemned? They're condemned by their own attitudes, their own actions, their own admissions. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, in the context of communion, where in looking at it very carefully, I've come to conclude that he's not talking about the difference between Christians or non-Christians, but the factions within the Corinthian church. And he said, there must be factions among you so that those who are approved may be made evident. God allows factions so that when you investigate and you see the fruit of those factions, you begin as God's people to see, oh, that faction is fleshly. That faction is not doing what God says. And these will happen throughout our lives. So let me make one final point of this, and then I have a few implications and applications. So like, where do we go from here? I want to make two really careful points here when you leave. People are removed from leadership because of sin. People in leadership in the church are removed from those offices because of sin. You can violate the qualifications that put you in that office, and therefore you can be removed. But people are disfellowshipped because they refuse to repent. There's a difference. You can be removed from an office or a ministry position because you no longer qualify because of your sin, but you're disfellowshipped from the body because you won't repent of those sins. There's no sin that cannot be forgiven both by the Lord and people, and this is often the case, that a sin destroys a person or a marriage or whatever because the person would not repent. It was not the sin that destroyed it in and of itself. Well, a couple of things I want to address then. I want to talk about church membership. 
later, uh, we'll have you come up here and sign the covenant again. <laughs> a couple things about that, the implications of what we're doing together as a body. For those who are visiting or are new to our church, we have church membership where we covenant together for the gospel and Christian life. But I have three things I want to say. Our church covenant for membership says of the person signing it that I will joyfully submit to the loving rule of the elders. Some of you have that memorized. You're, you're saying it with me. I will joyfully submit to the loving rule of the elders. There's a lot packed in there. As Pastor Gabe has made it very clear, but if I ever come to the place where I cannot joyfully submit and no longer can do so with all my heart, I'm just going to say this. Don't be that guy. Don't write the email. Don't send us letters. Don't go on Facebook. Let God be God. If we're doctrinally wrong, call us out. If it's over other things, leave peaceably if you can no longer submit. And you have to know this, that if you disfellowship yourself and you sin on the way out that's divisive, you have to understand something very simple. If you leave in a divisive manner, you have forfeited all the benefits of membership. You don't get them both. You don't get a bar mitzvah right? You don't get a bridal shower. You don't get a wedding. Your children cannot attend Sunday school or Hope Academy. You can't be at youth group. Why? You're a divisive person who's come out against the body of Christ and attacking it and attempting to destroy it. So two other things. When we signed our membership thing here, this is an agreement with a joyful agreement with the elders rule. But remember what elder rule is. It's not congregational votes. It's not a democracy. The elders' decisions are final. But this is not like, oh, that's a dictatorship because God did that in the realm of the home. Parents have the final say in the home. Uh, in human government, the governing authorities have the final say. They're all under God's responsibility in his word. But at the end of the day, the elder rule is that we are required by God to lead. It's not a democracy, and that makes it hard in a situation like this because we live in a world in which, now we're a democratic republic, but the idea in a democracy, of course, is we all get a say in that. And since I didn't have a say in that, I'm really ticked. I understand that. I really do. It is the form of government we think Scripture teaches, and we're not going to adjudicate everything in front of everyone. It's neither wise nor profitable. It's not because you're unable. It's just not the way that that should work. So finally, two other things. Deacons, some have asked the question, well, look, but this person was not just removed from, leader, uh, from membership. They weren't removed from membership. They removed themselves. But also being a deacon. You have to understand that deacons are installed and removed by the elders as the elders see necessary for the health of the church. Deacons are chosen by elders and not by the congregation and thus are removed by elders and not by the congregation. And deacons serve to support the elders and thus must be in harmony with the elders' direction for the church. And I'm going to do something extremely boring. I'm going to read from our Constitution and bylaws. I'm sure that all of you have been doing that this week. Each deacon shall assist the elders by performing duties assigned by the Board of Elders. 
and may be removed from office at any regular or special meeting of the board if he is found to be physically or mentally incapacitated or spiritually unqualified according to pertinent scripture. Titus, Timothy, etc. After a thorough cooperating investigation by the Board of Elders. What constitutes that? That which appeals to conscience and that we believed that we were 100% this was the case. So I want to leave you with a couple of encouragements. You may be here, and if you're not a believer, and you've been sitting through this the last couple of weeks, which is amazing, or you're a new believer, and you're like, this just proves it. Church is a hoax. These people can't get along. Jesus said in the Bible, you may be thinking, Jesus said in the Bible, it's all love, and it's going to be great. Just join my church, and it's perfect village. And you come here to Hope Bible Church, and you're like, Either this is the worst church in the world, okay, or this is the way Christianity rolls. And we love you. We want to talk more to you. We do not want you to be injured, but we cannot protect every notion of the heart. But I do want to say this as a broad category. Jesus and the apostles warned us that in this age, the church would be filled with wheats and tear that there'd be divisions in the church, and that many heretics would come, many dividers would come. So I want to just say this. We can debate later about what that all means in practical life, but the church local is never going to be fully pure. There is no church to go to where this cannot happen to you. But there are churches that never discipline anybody. So it looks like all the children are perfect. I encourage you, friends, through a larger study to realize that Jesus did warn us and that this is what would it, you would expect in his church. It's not what we should do, but what you expect. And finally, I'll just close with this as a word of encouragement. We've mentioned Pastor Leek and how he dealt with things, but I want to tell you this. If you're new to the church and you just became a member and you're like, dude, I'm done, or this all just happened under these three pastors, but if we really had a real pastor here, it wouldn't have happened. I just want to remind you the Lord Jesus had one of his guys go rogue on his own team. But I want to quote Pastor Leek in, follow, in closing. Because six years ago, an elder on this team went rogue and became divisive. And Pastor Leek sent out a communication to our congregation and I want to read from that because he had preached on the passage that I was just in three years before that and had worked through the text. And then he is saying this about the incident six years ago. And many of you were here when that happened. I want to finish by reading from his excerpt. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. He says a factious man is a man who causes divisions in the church. The Greek word is the origin of the word heretic or heresy, as I've mentioned. A heretic is one who needlessly divides the church with his words. He does not have to have bad doctrine. Words alone can divide a church. A divisive man chooses his own path and forces that upon a church. Romans 16 tells us, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances, contrary to the teachings of which you've learned. Your eye on those will be and turn away from them. 
For such men are slaves, not of the Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. And their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unexpecting. Factious men, he says, will not submit to the word or the leaders in the church. They go their own way and refuse to fit in and submit to the divine teachings and structures. They are lifted up in their own pride, though they rarely admit that pride is a problem. Divisive men may think they are right, even when they are wrong. Love is the opposite of a factious man. Love pulls together. Colossians 3 says, love is the perfect bond of unity. It is a pretend love which argues brothers apart for unnecessary reasons. And then he concludes with these two sentences. It usually is done by someone trying to start a following of their own. Divisive men also try to drum up false charges against leaders to gain an advantage within the church. The only way unity can be achieved and maintained in a local church is around its elders. Friends, I appeal to you as a brother and a pastor, follow the word of God. Listen to what it tells the elders to do and look at it carefully and realize we have to do this together. Let me pray for you. Father, you've been very kind to us that in this wonderful church, all these believers who want to be in unity, there is a unity that we are to preserve. We don't even need to create it, but to preserve it, as it says in Philippians. But Father, we know that doesn't happen without the Spirit, without the Word, and without hearts which wish to do it. And so we ask that at Hope Bible Church, this would be the first day of an even greater work of the Holy Spirit in our church. Prune us as you already are. Make us in the image of Christ. Let there be a sweetness and a unity going forward. May we be obedient to the scriptures. May we trust and follow you. And may the devil have no way to place in our church the seeds of disunity or destruction. I pray for young believers or perhaps uh, those who do not come from a background in these things, that you would help them not be swayed by uh, deceptive arguments, but for them to throw themselves, cast themselves on Scripture and the work of the Spirit. And Father, we pray that in this case, that you'd affirm those who are approved. Lord, we love you. We ask that these days ahead will be gloriously powerful in the work of your Spirit, and we thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.